continuing on in Exodus, I put uh, let the plagues begin, and I had half of this written uh, last week, and so did some more on it as well. Uh, I know maybe, maybe many of you don't know, but I'll just say it now, I'll admit to it, I'm Dutch, uh, and being Dutch has a direct correlation to being stubborn, okay? So this is not an unknown feature. One of the sayings to describe us is this, you can tell a Dutchman, but you cannot tell him much. Sadly, we're proud of that. I had a Dutch professor at Virginia Tech. He was my plant pathology uh, professor. I enjoyed him as a teacher. I remember a couple things about him. Uh, one, that he was Dutch, and two, he didn't use deodorant. Those are the two things as a college student I, I knew. In an unair-conditioned building, the deodorant thing really got to me. Um, at times. However, I still remember going to his office, uh, working through plant pathology, asking questions, and above his office door at college, college professor, he has a bumper sticker that says, you can tell a Dutchman, but you can't tell him much. And so I'm very aware of stubbornness, Dutch stubbornness, but I can tell you this. I wanted, you, I wanted to give that as background. I've encountered a level of stubbornness uh, in one of my daughters that exceeds the gen- genetic potential found in Dutch individuals, all right? So it has gone way beyond what we're capable of. My brothers and I always joke uh, about the Dutch because we're proud of being Dutch, but we're also very realistic. Uh, it's probably one of the most overrun countries. If there's war, they're throwing down their weapons and putting their hands up, very neutral. We joke that if the Dutch people had been the pioneers, the Western pioneers, we'd all be still living on the East Coast, okay? We would never, never finish that journey over there. Uh, but I, so I say that, Dutch stubbornness, and then my daughter and I look at how determined she is, and I always, oh, I didn't really always wonder, I actually always knew, I wondered where did this come from, and we've identified it as her maternal grandmother, that's Heather's mom, uh, so much so that I nicknamed my daughter JJ for Janine Jr., just in case you're wondering, has he been disrespectful to his mother-in-law? I told my mother-in-law. She was very proud of her granddaughter. <laughs> um, she, she is from Indiana. There's Yankee blood there. Uh, my father-in-law's from Louisiana. There's no stubborn there at all. They do, they, there's, there's, no, there's no moral compass or anything. I'm just kidding. I'm just saying it's Louisiana, all right? You, you, anything goes right there. Uh, she's Indiana blood, Yankee fortitude that even my Dutch blood could not pollute. Uh, And if you're wondering if Heather has the same steely resolve, this is what was unique to us, and while we jumped a generation, Heather is more like Dutch stubborn, all right? They're stubborn, but, you know, we'll give in at some point. Um, I give that illustration so you can get a picture in your mind of the persistence that we find in Pharaoh. Now, I want to push pause. I'm on the video. I'm not accusing my daughter or my mother-in-law of being like Pharaoh. I just wanted to paint a picture of the depth of stubbornness, and I'm going to get to the point about the, the break in comparison here, but I want you to realize that Pharaoh is beyond Dutch stubborn. He has his own brand of resolve, and here's my little, you know, make sure no one throws stones at me, but unlike my mother-in-law and my daughter, his resolve was not used for good or for God, and I put all joking aside. I'm thrilled to see my mother-in-law's character and my daughter Uh, Because I know this about my mother-in-law, no amount of social familiar pressure could be brought to bear that would bend her from what she thought God wanted and commanded. And so happy to see it uh, in her and part of her character. I was uh, grateful actually to have my mother-in-law be able to see that before she went to be with the Lord. She could see some of Aniston's, I might as well name her because you know who I'm talking about. If you met Avery, you know she's not stubborn or resolved in any way. She's more Dutch soft Dutch on that end. Anison's the one with that steely determination. And one of the joys I had is that my mother-in-law knew how much of her imprint was on her granddaughter. So it's neat to see. Pharaoh, though, is equally unbending. So I'm using that steely resolve and that I'm not going to bend no matter how much family pressure comes, no matter how much social pressure comes on what God wants. Well, Pharaoh has that same locked-in resolve, but his is for idolatrous worship and the authority that Egypt has vested in him. And so here's a man that says, I will not bend. I am a God, and I want to be worshipped as a God. I don't want anything 
to change me. I'm not going to give an inch. But I want us to remember something. Nothing will thwart God's plan and will. So if God says he's bringing his people out of Egypt, then God is bringing his people out of Egypt. Now you say to me probably, Kenny, we know that. Way to make an obvious statement. We can read here and know that Israel leaves Egypt. I say that because as we understand God's will, as we're looking forward in life, as we live our life, understand that God's will will not be thwarted. It's not going to be moved. His purpose will be accomplished. On top of all that, God is not surprised by this. He's actually said and told Moses clearly that he knew how Pharaoh would respond and that he would get glory from Pharaoh's response. And I want us to remember, I've mentioned it a couple weeks now, I know, but Exodus 4 has God, I believe it's Exodus 4, 3 or 4 there, has God telling Moses that he knows that Pharaoh is going to be hard, that circumstances will harden Pharaoh, and then God himself would harden Pharaoh. And we're actually going to see that if we get all the way to the sixth plague tonight, we're going to see God actually come in and harden Pharaoh. And I make a comment, there's not a sadder place to be than at that point in Pharaoh's life. But what we're going to watch is circumstances or Pharaoh hardening his own heart building up to it. Now, I put as a side note, interestingly, the, the manner in which Pharaoh would end up driving out Israel, and that's what you're going to hear. You said you're going to drive Israel out of the land. Uh, that's going to almost be necessary for Israel because remember where we're at with Israel. Moses talked to Pharaoh. He did let my people go. Pharaoh says, you're lazy. I'm going to make life miserable for them, more so than it already is. And Israel is broken, remember? We talked about the broken spirit, the crushed spirit. They're at a point where no resistance is coming from them. They want Moses and Aaron to leave. They want things to go back to normal, quote-unquote, their normal, and they're not interested at all. And so it's actually going to take Pharaoh's forcing them out. He's not going to ultimately let them go. He's going to force them out for fear that everyone in the country is going to die. And that's what's going to be the end, and they're going to be sent out. Now, it doesn't mean Pharaoh doesn't chase him down. We're going to see that as we journey into the desert and to Mount Sinai. But what we're going to see at, at the end of these plagues is them forced to go with no option to stay. And we're going to see how God accomplishes his will. Now, I want to remind you about the land of Goshen where they're at. It's the Delta region, and it would have been very fertile and agriculturally conducive. So there was a lot of ways for them to say, I don't want to deal with this trouble we're broken. And the reality is this, broken people don't typically resist. That's why wicked dictators try to break people, uh, because they don't want anything there uh, to, to, to resist. And so we're going to embark on the famous plagues in Egypt that God will use to accomplish his will and show his glory. And I want you to always keep that in mind. God is moving and working on Pharaoh and here's the thing, sometimes people look at the, the plagues and look how mean God is, right? God does this to him and God does that to him and God does that to him. What kind of God does that? And that's a wrong perspective. You know what we should see in 10 plagues? 10 acts of mercy that God extends to Egypt to have them line up with his will. And the intensity of the plagues are going to increase over time. Now, what we're going to see is God... Um, proving his right to direct his people will watch him finalize the argument of who is God. Um, each plague we're going to see, some more than others, will confront gods or a god of Egypt. And I'll be honest with you, the gods of Egypt are confusing. They have multiple names. There's different worship in different regions. And so it's kind of hard to put it all together. I'm just grabbing where I am, if I took a course on Egyptian gods, I'm sure I could connect more <laughs> to it. But right now, you're at least going to see a picture of some of the gods that would have been confronted with this. And so we're going to jump into the first set of plagues. And you hear me say set of plagues because there's multiple ways to group the plagues. The most, um, well, easiest and also the, uh, what seems to fall from Scripture is groups of three. Three groups of three and then the final firstborn killed. And they have, a, they have a cyclical nature to them. And so you'll see sometimes there's a dressing at the river. Then you're going to see them 
warn, then you're going to see no warning or, or an immediate plague that falls. And then you're going to repeat again and we'll go through the next three. And you see that kind of repetition over and over again. I don't say it's a perfect lockdown. It's just a way to see the plagues. And so we'll do them in groups of three. So we're going to jump into the first one, blood, frogs, and gnats. And you see the pictures there to kind of work your way through it. Uh, we begin with blood and that's chapter seven. And that's 14 through 25, and I'll read a a good chunk of these. I said it before, if you can get a grip on Scripture, the point of this is to know your Bible. So I'll read. I might skip over some verses just for the sake of time, but I encourage you as you're reading uh, to work through that, work through this book and understand it. Maybe scribble some notes in your Bible so that when you're reading it the next time, it maybe helps you catapult. So I'm not saying the notes are worthy to be scribbled in there, but that maybe whatever will help you remember things, because the goal of this is that you build a framework so that when you go back to Exodus and read it, you can understand and keep applying it to more depth. So 14 says this, And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goeth out unto the water, and thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come, and the rod which was turned to a serpent shalt thou take in thy hand. So in other words, take the thing that we've been using the whole time. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wilt, wouldest not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. If you read commentators, a lot of them want to walk the plague away to not being actually blood or a physical manifestation of that. Uh, I don't agree with that at all, and I think it becomes clear in a few verses. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. I don't think it's a natural phenomenon because it's not something that's going to happen over and over again that kills the fish. And the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying to Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt. (coughs) If you mark in your Bible, mark this to let you know how miraculous this was, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. It's not connected to a natural body of water. It's going to jump into things that have been stored. We'll talk a little bit later about that. (coughs) 20 through 25. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And then it says, And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neither did he hearken unto them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, Neither did he set his heart to this also. In other words, he didn't care. He wasn't going to change his mind. And then all the Egyptians digged around about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. And seven days were fulfilled after that the Lord had smitten the river. So we get a little time there. I'm going to dive into the blood here. Now, as one writer notes, on each occasion, it is the Lord who takes the initiative and instructs Moses to act. Don't miss that part of this either. Moses is not deciding when to go. Moses is not deciding what to say. Moses is not deciding what to do. He is doing exactly what he is told to do. And it makes it clear in Scripture. Whenever Scripture makes that crystal clear, you understand that Moses is the agent of God. God is the one doing this. And and Moses is articulating that to Pharaoh. Pharaoh thinks he's a god. We live in a world where everyone thinks they are gods. And they worship themselves and they, they elevate themselves. And we've elevated that to um degree. And I want you to, in your mind, recognize how our society functions like so many million pharaohs in how they deal with the confrontation. And so whenever Moses is talking, he's speaking God's words to him. Uh, the Lord instructs Moses and he goes down to the Nile to meet up with Pharaoh. Now, here's what's interesting Pharaoh would go to the Nile every morning because he's going to worship the god Happy. I might be mispronouncing it. It's H-A-P-I, so it sounds happy to me. Um, This god was associated with fertility and the flooding of the Nile. So I want you to get a picture of this. You're Pharaoh. You worship a plethora of gods, and you're a god that the people of Egypt worship. 
and you're going down to the Nile to worship it, the God of fertility and the flooding of the Nile. The flooding of the Nile was important. Without the flooding of the Nile, it brought the deposits, the sediments, and it brought all the agriculture and, and, and moisture, all the things that they needed to grow there. So this is a critical thing. It's, it's a beloved flood, so to speak. And right in the midst of idolatrous worship and at the location and source of that worship, God confronts them. Just to make sure God is not finding his own turf, he walked out, so to speak, into the home court of this false god. And Pharaoh, of course, is not going to cave because to do so would acknowledge God's right, and then it means he's subjecting himself to God. And this is a God, remember, how did Pharaoh first respond? I, what? Don't know that God. He won't even acknowledge the existence of the God of the Hebrews. He's not going to acknowledge the existence of the true God. Yet this turning of water to blood was not an intensified natural phenomenon. Uh, What happens yearly in the Nile is red clay sediment from Ethiopia comes in, and actually the Nile gets reddish looking. And so people that don't believe in miracles, they don't believe that this was God's hand, view all of these plagues as an intensified version of a natural phenomenon. Uh, The Nile would be reddish, and then it would make sense for all they did. I make a note here that this was not some natural phenomenon, but a complete change. The substance of the water changed. It wasn't just dirty water. It became another substance. How do we know that? The fish die. If every year there's sediment that turns the water red, then all the fish aren't dying from that. You go on, the water stinks. What once was worshipped will become disgusting. Here's the real kicker for me, and and I'll note this again. The water not connected to the Nile goes to blood. Who here has ever watched a prepper shell? Doomsday prepper. What's one thing a doomsday prepper needs? Water. And they store it. They store it in in large quantities. I want you to envision a, a doomsday prepper. Anyone who doesn't know what a doomsday prepper is? Okay, this is somebody who's waiting for the apocalypse to happen, like the world's going to be destroyed, and they've got a bunker somewhere, depending on their level of preparation. So some people prep by getting farm animals so they can exist on their own. Other people prep by literally digging a hole and building a bunker, and they put vats of water that would be good. So I want you to envision this. You're the Egyptian version of a prepper. Now, all of them were preppers because they lived in ancient culture. So you wanted to have water, you put the water in a jug. Now, the water's in a jug in your house, in a wooden pail or a stone pot. Moses turns the Nile to blood. And then every canal turns to blood and every stream turns to blood. And then this is the interesting thing, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. He's not saying that they dipped those into bloody water and it came up bloody. I'm going to say this. I'm pretty sure that everyone knows that will happen all the way down to the cubbies. They're going to know, hey, whatever you put your cup in, that's what you're getting out, right? If you, if you dip your cup into the punch bowl, you get punch, right? It's talking about water that was already in stone vessels and in wooden pails. And when Moses was instructed to turn the water to blood, when God did that, it turned what was in those buckets to blood. Can you imagine you're the guy that dragged up tons of water the day before? You're like, I'm ready. Something crazy happens. I'm ready. And then you go to your water and it's, it's completely full of blood. I mention that because as some commentators think, and they look at this, and one of their proofs is they say, look, but they dug around the Nile, and the only way you could purify water, because they're digging to go through sand, would be if it was just sediment. Well, there's a couple things that are important to know. One, it never says they find fresh water when they dig. And two, there's nothing that says God contaminated the water beneath. Because God could have done either of those. Um, But the fact is, it was a complete change that took place. But what's fascinating, what do the magicians do? They do the same thing. I have a question for you. If every bit of potable water and even waters in pots has been turned to blood, do you need a magician to turn water to blood? Anyone want more blood? What could they not do? Turn it back. And I want you to realize that, again, nothing they did helped. (laughs) 
even if when they dug they found fresh water, because obviously they had to find some fresh water to turn to blood, even if they were able to dig and get fresh water, that is yet again a mercy from God, giving the people water. Who's not going to run out of water, or who's going to run out of the water, the, the, the last to run out of water? It's going to be Pharaoh, right? The guy whose heart's hardened and walked in. I'm sure they had other beverages that they could drink during that time of seven days. So if God allowed them to dig for water, that was a mercy. I want you to recognize something. It was a miraculous change of substance. And verse 19 at the end is your best indication or proof of that. It's impossible for clean water in a stone vessel to get sediment from Ethiopia the next day. That can only happen with a miracle. And so the substance changed. Um, Pharaoh, though, has enough magical evidence to bolster his own arrogance and stubbornness. He turns into his house and does not consider reality nor its effect on his people. Because again... So what that they turned a cup of water into blood and did a trick? You've got a river full of blood. They didn't turn rivers into blood. They couldn't. They were already turned to blood. And so he just turns his back on that. And I put, don't miss the disposition of this guy. He's basically willing to take any evidence presented to him so that he can stay God. Do we see the same in the world around us? Think with me here. You, you present obvious proof of God. You see God. He speaks in Scripture. And someone will find any random thing. I call it, they'll find a cup full of blood. Well, this proves that God's not God. The river's bloody, but I got a cup of blood from a musician. I'm good. And I want you to see Pharaoh wasn't even looking for real proof. The guy was willing to take anything. And don't miss how our world acts like Pharaoh. Any minuscule, non-point they'll grab hold of and run with it. Um, Also notice this, there's no regard for the people placed under his care. His own selfish interest placed forefront. And we're going to see that over and over again. And I think we see that over and over again today with our our leadership, right? We see that with, with people in leadership. They place themselves above all their people. Just a good idea of a, of a leader who doesn't care for anyone but himself. Now, seven days pass, and then God sends Moses to demand the freeing of Israel, or he, speaking of God, would send frogs. Who here likes frogs? Oh, not there's a couple takers. Frog legs, there you go. How many frog legs could you eat before you're like, it's over? There's a Chinese restaurant right next to Aldi that does the frog leg thing. I took my kids there once, but it's like $15 a plate. So it's like, and then all they eat is ice cream. I'm like, we can do this a lot cheaper elsewhere. And I I wanted to eat the frog legs and I actually got some and then I I just could not. It's too glisteny. That was too shiny. It just just didn't appeal to me. But either way, Carrie, we're going to turn loose right now. Exodus 8, frog leg city. Um, I'm going to look at 1 through 15. And I'm going to look here. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. By the way, frogs were worshipped and revered. They loved frogs. They croaked, telling you the Nile had flooded. It was music to the Egyptians. All right? I want you to realize he's not using something they don't like. If I would have asked them that question, who here likes frogs, everyone would have raised their hands. None of them would have eaten the frog legs. Carrie would have been run out of Egypt as an abominable person who killed gods. I just want you to see what a wicked man he is. But either way, in their eyes. And if thou refuse, he's going to go. And then the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly. Don't miss those words. Those are beautiful words in Scripture to tell you to the extent of what happens. Which shall go up and come into thine house and into thy bedchamber and upon thy bed and into the house of thy servants and upon thy people and into thine ovens and into thy kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come up both on thee and upon thy people and upon all thy servants. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying to Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. Aaron does it. And then verse 7, the magicians do it as well. They bring frogs upon Egypt. Now, if you are inundated in frogs, do you need more frogs? And how easy is it to do a trick with frogs when frogs are everywhere? I can make a penny appear if there's a million pennies everywhere. I'm sure I can make a penny appear. I can get you, at least I can get a cubby to believe me. 
all right, that it'll work. But they do that again. And here's what's fascinating. Here, Pharaoh is not going to even care that they could do it. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice <coughs> to the Lord. And Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me. When shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses that they may remain in the river only? And he said what? Tomorrow. Isn't that fascinating? Let me wait one more day. I like frogs, or I like my pride so much that I will endure the frogs to see if something else will solve this problem. Um, you keep going down, the frogs go, and then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. <coughs> and the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. And when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, was, was easing, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now, frogs are worshipped like I told you. They are the music that tells you agriculture is going to be booming. Um, every time the Nile flooded, now remember the God happy that was of the flood. The frogs would technically be singing her praise. And then you go on. The face of the goddess hecht or Heket. That was, so you have a goddess whose face is a frog face. She's married to the god Kanum, who is one of the creator gods, and she is said to have assisted her husband. So not only do you have the god who floods the river, who's been afflicted, happy, happy is afflicted with this, and happy is confronted with the frog thing, because the frogs would have sung that happy had flooded the Nile, right? So we're walking through their kind of cycle of seasons and who they worshiped. Then there's a, there's a goddess who has the face of a frog who was said to be part of or help with the creator god, Kanum, and there's another creator god, Namre, and so you just got an inundation of gods that come here. And she is one of the eight primeval deities of Egypt. She's important, the frog-faced one. But this flood of frogs brings no worship to mind, no pleasant sounds to signify the change of seasons, and agricultural blessings. Instead, we find complete coverage. Frogs are everywhere. Uh, in 2013, uh, Heather and I, with three of our kids, the other two were not born yet, went to uh, Nicaragua for a couple months. I uh, was taking over a mission organization there and uh, just getting a grip on Nicaragua. So we were there for three months. Uh, we rented a house, which was nice enough for Nicaragua standards. It was a nice place to be. Um, but there's one thing that they had, lizards. Lots and lots of lizards, as in hundreds of lizards would be in the roof. I'll take lizards. We also had crabs come in the house. And have you ever heard of crabs on tile in the middle of the night? <laughs> Awful. It's satanic is what I say. They're satanic beasts. They should be eaten like we do with those buffets, right? That's what we should do with those. But these lizards were there. And for some reason, lizards bother me less than spiders, other insects, and definitely less than snakes. But there's lizards, they would dry your clothes on the bushes. I still remember putting my shirt on, and I had three lizards in there. Now, I'm less bothered by lizards. My shirt was off very quickly, and I still think I double-checked from then on out to see if I had uh, baby... And they're all baby lizards, a little... They felt like insects. I just kept telling myself, it's a lizard, it's better than an insect. Um, I don't think, though, that I ever ate a lizard in anything Heather cooked. I want you to get a picture here. When the Egyptians needed bread, and I always think of when my mom would need bread, it's in a bowl on the counter. They needed bread in a trough with their feet. Who wants to eat Egyptian bread? <laughs> just, just throwing that out there in case anyone's getting hungry. Um, imagine you're, you're, you're kneading it with your feet, and then a frogs are jumping in. What happens when you're stamping into the bread, and now you have frog bread? Maybe Carrie would love that. And then when you're going to cook over the fire, the frogs are just jumping in. What does everything you cook taste like? Frog. Because everything you chicken is. <laughs> Didn't look like chicken at that Chinese buffet, though. So that's what's... Everything, it just permeates everything that's there. So the, the, the frogs that you worshipped are now a terrible nuisance. 
Isn't that ironic? You worship them. You have a, a God whose face is a frog. And now you can't stand frogs. It was the, the singing for your God of the Nile, happy. When it flooded, the frogs would croak and sing and would let you know that now's another growing season. It's, it's coming. Everything's great. And now you can't stand it. The magicians are able to bring frogs as well, which is like giving a drowning person a drink of water, right? It's, it, it, it doesn't help at this moment. Who cares? Who cares? Get rid of frogs, right? But it, that trick doesn't even have any bearing on Pharaoh this time. No one wants more frogs. So he calls in Moses and begs them to ask the Lord to get rid of the frogs. And this is the interesting thing. He waits a day to do it. And there's a song, this is Evangelist would sing, it's one more night with the stinking frogs, one more night in sin. I had a terrible time with them last night, and I just want to do it again. It's actually a funny song. Kids enjoy it, but it actually teaches a, a principle. Here is Pharaoh. I want you to get rid of the frogs. I'm going to let the people go. When do you want me to do this? And Pharaoh says, one more day. And what is that for? Well, it's Pharaoh is hoping that another solution will come along to delay one more night at least to keep his pride, and to stay God, at least in his mind. Well, the next day, the, do the frogs are all over the land, are killed and piled in heaps that stink up the whole land. And so their God went from worship to a nuisance to a stench that was disgusting. Because you know what's equally as gross as cooked frog? Rotting frog. Piled high. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't come through as promised. He hardened his heart. And, and we're going to see God say this multiple times on the first three plagues. Just like I said, just like I said, as the Lord had said. By the time we get to the second round, we're going to see that phrase drop off because everyone knows God knew that, that he would do this. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't come through. God does what he promises. He always does what he says, and he is unique in that. The world always breaks its promise. They're constantly breaking their word. God never is. And you're going to see over and over, and I, and I want to turn our eyes again from seeing God being mean to now seeing God's mercy. What has God shown Pharaoh and the Egyptians over and over again? That he is obviously what? Him. He's God. This is, he's, he's made them aware of this. He's given them the time, and he knocks it out exactly that time. All of those are grace and mercy that he's extending to the Egyptians for them to repent, for them to do what he said. There's 10 plagues building up, and they're all signs of God's mercy. Now, without warning, God now instructs Moses to tell Aaron to stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land. And the dirt is going to become what some, some translations will call it lice, some people call it gnats. The Hebrew word is referring to a tiny stinging insect that's barely visible to the naked eye. So think small, think pesky, think biting. Uh, by the way, the next round of flies also bites, just so you get a good idea of, of the mystery that's there. And what you're going to see here is complete contamination all over the land, all over everything and everyone. One writer notes this. The priests in, um, priest in Egypt in their temples were fastidious about being clean. They're constantly cleaning themselves they would um, shave all the hair off their body. And what's fascinating is as these insects infest the temple, biting them, what does it do to their skin? It just breaks out completely and makes every priest in Egypt impure. Because why are they cleaning all the time? They felt that part of their worship of their God involved the priest being clean, no hair, completely shaved. And when it says they were constantly doing this, they were engaged in frequent washings and shaving off body hair, and they were afflicted and rendered impure in their duties. So religion as a whole, with the gnats, is suddenly affected. To find a specific God is difficult, though there are a couple. One, uh, um, there's multiple ones. One is Kepher, which is a really weird one. Kepher, which is another God of resurrection and which was depicted as a flying beetle. Uh, this could also represent the fourth plague. Um, there was also the god Seth, and this is the one I think is most likely confronted. What did Aaron do? He stirred up the what to make gnats? Dust. Seth is the god of the earth. 
dirt is his. And God just turned his dirt into what? Terrible plagues, right? On top of all that, you have the idolatry on the multiple fronts, the temple uh, worship, all this stuff that's now impure. And then not to mention pain and the issues that come with flies. Think about tiny insects you cannot see and the dust becomes them. What is in your eyes? What is in your mouth? I'm talking right now. What am I eating? Bugs. Little tiny insects. My eyes are, it doesn't make your eyes itch right now like you think there's bugs in your eyes. You want to wear goggles over them. It just permeates. The magicians cannot duplicate it, which convinces them they battle a god. And I blaze through without reading about the plague of lice, so we're going to summarize it here. They come in. It says, then the magicians, verse 19 of chapter 8, then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Now, do not view this as a statement of faith. When they couldn't do the trick is when it dawned on them that humans were not perpetuating this. And it teaches us two things. (laughs) One, the first two times and all the times they conjured up blood and conjured up frogs and conjured up the snake turning, uh, the staff turning into snake, they were all tricks. Who knows how a magic trick is performed? The magician. And here they're basically telling you, we've been doing magic tricks because now we can't do it. And everything else we did before was obviously a magic trick because we can't do it. And apparently they're the best magicians in the world. And so this must be the finger of God. This must be God's working or the gods. And you got to view that they're not coming to faith here. These are people who are just trying to tell Pharaoh, uh-oh, this is, this is beyond us. But what happens? Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. <coughs> what is it? Pharaoh ignores that reality, something he'd already done with the frogs. And his heart is hardened. He does not listen to them again, as the Lord had said, right? The Lord knew this would happen. And I put here, our sinful world also ignores reality. They ignore God's absolute standard and authority. But even though they do, it doesn't make it any less real. And that's something as Christians that we wrestle with sometimes. We see a world that doesn't agree. And then we sometimes listen and we're thinking, well, you know, they don't agree, then is it real? Well, God is trying to show us through all of Scripture that regardless of the response of the pharaohs of this world, what he says is real and it's actual. And this is a pattern of worldly thinking to ignore reality and resist God. Because when you say there is a God that is infinite and beyond everything in your world, then you must be subject to that God. You cannot admit there's an almighty God and then say, almighty God doesn't warrant my subjection. He's king or he's not king. And you can't say there's a God and therefore not worship that God. That's why the world is consumed with boxing God or ignoring God or pushing it away. An atheist oftentimes is even closer to faith than someone in another religion. Why? Because they've just thrown God completely out of the picture and all you have to do is, is prove God, right? It's there. It's, it's, it's their hard heart that's there. But once there's a God, they can't, they can't. Everything they've believed in is shattered for them. Because once there's a God, there's a God that serves. There's a God, when he speaks, he must be listened to. And so there's a lot at stake for the world. They want to be their own God. You can't be your own God and worship God. And so they're fighting for their position. Well, we now begin on to another cycle of plagues and we come to flies, livestock, and boils. Now, these plagues intensify. If you're looking at chapter 8, verse 20, this is, a lot of your Bibles probably have the thing that says the plague of flies. The word I put here is swarms. Because you're going to read in most of them, it says swarms of flies, The of flies is not in Hebrew. There's just swarms. Of flies is added. The Septuagint, which I'll talk about, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament done before Christ uh, out in Alexandria, so right down there, um, 
will use a word called a blood fly. So they translate the swarms into a word called blood flies, which is how we get the idea that it was flies that helps us understand what the swarms were. But there's something unique in the swarms. It could be swarms of multiple types of flies. So now you have tiny insect gnats, and the next plague are flies, and, and I'll, I'll mention this, it's gonna be, it could, the best picture I could give you is a horse fly, a biting horse fly. That's what it basically boils down to. Let me read here. And the Lord said unto Mo, Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he cometh forth to the, what? Water. Cycle number two, we're back at the river. Still hasn't changed his worship. He's back there. Um, and saying to him, thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Else if thou will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms and then of flies. Depending on your translation, when something's in italics, it, it oftentimes means that it's, it's explanatory. It's a translation's um, help to understand what that Hebrew word meant or a Greek word. Upon thee and upon thy servants and upon thy people and into thy houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms and also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I'll put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so, and there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted by reason of the swarm. And again, every time of flies is read, that is an explanation put in. The Hebrew word is swarm saying over and over again. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, go ye sacrifice to your Lord or sacrifice to your God in the land. Stay here and sacrifice. Moses said, it's not meat so to do for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. They would be carry, right? Killing gods. That's what he would have been doing. Frog leg, chewing. They would have been killing cows, sheep, goats. Those were worshiped characters. And so Moses is giving us insight into why these people might have been abominations to the Egyptians. And also, don't miss this, it's indicating that they have not been sacrificing to God all these years because if it's an abomination now, Moses is not making that up, then it would have been an abomination all these other times. And so they probably haven't been sacrificing at all to God uh, through these years. Um, and he says, And the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice the Lord our God, as he shall command us. In other words, no, we'll do what God says. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away and treat for me. In other words, okay, you can leave the land, don't go too far. Moses said, behold, I go out from thee and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow, but let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Don't lie again. And Pharaoh went out from, uh, Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. Who keeps his word every single time? God does. And then who lies? And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. There remained not one, and Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. <coughs> Who's the liar? Pharaoh, who keeps his word? God. Now, notice again, as I mentioned, this is back to the river. Uh, recognizing the word swarms could be talking about multiple types of insects. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, says blood fly in their translation. So they give a Greek word that leads us to uh, what one commentator said is a march fly or a modern day gadfly, which all points back to basically a horse fly type of bug. For us Now they're flying around and it looks like a house fly to us. And so we're like, okay, that's irritating. These, these bugs actually bite. So let me give you the comparison. The bite is likened to a burning sharp sensation. Uh, they're not like mosquitoes. Mosquitoes actually, when they bite you, they give a little numbing around there. You, you don't, you feel it right, but it's not the same. This would actually feel like a pinch. And they're, they're strong enough to bite through clothing, actually. So there's a chance that you could feel a prick through the clothing. I was reading up about it. And they said, wear loose clothing. 
you know, because they'll bite behind the joints and at the ankle. Now imagine uh, when you read the word swarm, <coughs> and the Hebrew does that on purpose. God uses his word this way. Why a swarm? What is he trying to communicate to you? <laughs> just, that's just awful, right? Just think about, just, it, it tells you that you, you cannot get away from them. Do flies understand national boundaries? No. So I want you to see something. Swarms of flies at the most unnatural stop, and then there's no flies. I still remember being a kid, and uh, we lived in the mountains of North Carolina, and I remember it was raining at my house, and I was walking to my uncle's house because I could see sunshine, and I remember just being blown away. Have you ever had that where it's raining, and then it's not raining? And, ra- and it's just, it is, it's a weird thing. At least I thought it was weird. I was a kid in the mountains of North Carolina, so I don't know how smart I was, but either way, there I was wondering about it. Can you imagine bugs everywhere and there's a sharp line? Because for the first time, there's going to be a complete distinction. Israel is graciously not plagued in contrast to Egypt. God separates the land where most of them would have stayed. And then here's the interesting thing. 23 uh, talks about this distinction, uh, talks about them separating. If you turn back there, it says, and I'll put a division. That word division doesn't quite communicate exactly what the Hebrew is saying. It's actually driving to the word redemption again. It says God sets a redemption for his people. So he's using a word that we've seen when we talk about rescued and redeemed and the idea of redemption coming out of Egypt. God uses it here. So the word that's here is I'm going to set a redemption for his people. They're the recipients of divine deliverance. That's what Moses is telling Pharaoh. God is going to redeem in a picture what he's going to do when he takes them out. He's going to redeem them from this plague. They're going to be delivered. That's 23. Now, the plague was grievous, which is the word for heavy. It's the same thing that that the Pharaoh does with his heart. He makes his heart heavy or hard. We have the word hardened in English. So if you want to say grievous, you're going to say this was a hard plague. And that means it was weighing down. So the word heavy kind of gives you the implication whenever someone is like dragging right and they're depressed, we always say they're carrying a what? Heavy weight. It's like they can't lift their head up. That's, that's what the implication is. It's crushing, crushing down on them. And the land is corrupted. And I want you to see intensity. So this is now a plague that's not just a nuisance that's disgusting that's in the way. It's not just biting insects that make you impure and that go against your God, Seth, but now it's literally breaking the will of the Egyptians. The land is corrupted. Pharaoh says, worship your God here in Egypt, which meant he could still be a God, right? Because he he runs Egypt. Moses says, no, it's going to be an abomination. Again, telling you that they probably haven't been sacrificing. Pharaoh then says, go, but don't go too far. Pray for me. Moses does, and even though he told Pharaoh not to back out on his word, what does he do? Pharaoh did what to his heart? Pharaoh is directly responsible for deciding, I'm not going to do it. Something else didn't harden his heart. It wasn't a circumstance. It was him saying, I'm not going to do it. Now, what's not surprising, because we knew that Scripture doesn't mention this time that God told him. Like God said, he hardened his heart. God's like, you got it now, right? Three times before you understand, I knew this would happen. You have that listed there. Um, Notice, though, Pharaoh wanted to give partial obedience. And Moses said no. And this is what's interesting, and I put this as a thought here. Does our world not act the same sometimes? You're allowed to carry your faith so far. And here's the thing as a Christian. Can you push past the awkward Right, because sometimes you're like, well, they're, they're conceding. They're, they're giving us something. And the thing is, God hasn't given us permission to give anyone an out to his full command. I recognize it's awkward to talk about complete submission. What does God want? He wants all of you. Oh, doesn't seem fair. I remember talking to a colleague of mine, this was about 15 years ago. We did a Bible study, so we work at the greenhouse together. We're getting there early. Went to the book of John, uh, went, to the, um, went to parts of, of Romans, went to parts of uh, James. And you know his issue was? The full command of God. <laughs> it was the silliest thing. 
It was giving up Sundays. And I said, we're talking about eternity. You, 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 we've been talking about your, your sin and the fact that you need a redeemer for your sin, and you're talking to me about Sundays? But see, he did understand one thing, didn't he? God asked for it all. Complete submission. See, God is never pleased with partial concession from this world. That's never good enough. Never good to have a partial concession about sin, about his authority and right, about their need of redemption. That's what the world doesn't want to submit to. They don't want to say to God, you're right. They don't want to say to God, it's your perspective on sin. I am a sinner. I do have wrong. I can't fix myself. See, that's the thing that people push back against. And, and, and here's it. We see in a, in a kind of a small glimpse, Pharaoh trying to do the same thing. And Moses is like, no, we've got to go. We've got to fully obey what God wants. And I put, we should never be caught bartering with the world about full faith and trust because there is no such thing as partial faith. You either believe completely or you haven't what? You haven't believed. You believe or you don't believe. It's full faith, can never be partial. When Moses is sent back to Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may serve me. And if you don't, I, God, will send a plague, this is a disease, to kill the livestock. Let's look at verse uh, 9, 1 through 7. I have five minutes to knock out two plagues. I can do it. (coughs) So he goes back and he sends it to the livestock. I'm going to summarize this. Three, notice it's not just cattle. Oftentimes it's, it's a plague on the cattle and we think that all the cows die, but it's all the donkeys, it's all the horses, it's on the camels, it's on the ox, it's on the sheep, and it was a grievous... Moraine is what uh, the King James is saying there. Yours might have a different word. The idea is that it's an anthraxy type disease. It is intense. And what happens is, and we're going to walk through this a little bit, uh, is that it's going to infest every type of species. And that is kind of unique, right? This disease is going to go through all the animals. It's not just that cattle will suffer from this or sheep or sheep and cattle, but it's going to get goats and ox and donkeys and horses. It's just going through like a, like a plague. It's moving through, and I put here, it's complete devastation. This disease would knock down every type of animal domesticated and worshipped in Egypt. Now, verse 5 says something interesting. And the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord shall do this thing to the land. I wrote the wrong verse down there, obviously. i got to read one of what it says, but all of them died. Um, Look it up here. Verse 6 there. The Lord did that thing on the morrow, and all the cattle of Egypt died, but of the cattle of the children of Israel died not one. And I want you to notice something. That's a word, if you study Scripture, it's, it's a use in literature. It's a hyperbolic, and I might be mispronouncing it. It's a hyperbolic expression. Hyperbolic means you say it in a heavier way than it is. So it's an expression of... I'm using the word exaggeration. It's not exaggerating as in God is telling a story. It's trying to communicate to you the extent of this plague. Obviously, all the cattle can't die. All the livestock can't die now because when we have the hail, a bunch more livestock die. Now, there's two ways to look at it. One can be the cattle that were left in a field because God said all in the field would die. The other thing, and this is used throughout the Old Testament, a hyperbolic expression to carry the weight of this plague If someone says, everyone's dead, what are they trying to say, even if everyone's not dead? What does the expression communicate to us? Massive, right? It's it's extensive. It It is horrific. And I want you to get that. So that's why the Hebrew language would word it that way, is to tell you that this disease wasn't killing just most of the cattle. It's it feels like every cow died. Every sheep died. Every ox died. It, it, is, it annihilated their livestock. It was heavy, again, that same word. It was accomplished by a fast-spreading, highly contagious, and species-crossing disease. And one commentator said it, it's an anthrax-type disease. Moraine is the same kind of infectious disease or some other disease. It, it just resulted in a massive amount of animals dying. But this ultra-contagious disease did not contaminate the livestock of Israel. Again, does a disease stop at an imaginary line that we draw on the land? 
Those cattle were bumping into each other. There's no way it didn't cross over, but it didn't spread to Israel. There's something fascinating Pharaoh does. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Isn't that fascinating? God said there's going to be a distinction. He didn't bother checking that out with the flies. I guess it was too hard to know. But he did go and check and say, did any of the cattle from uh, Israelites die? Did any of their livestock die? And they're like, there's not a single dead one there. And it says it very specifically, not one of the cattle of Israel. Now, we just heard in 6 that all the cattle and livestock had died, which is a very bombastic expression. And then we have just yet another expression that tells you, what are they trying to communicate to us about the, the livestock in Israel? I don't even think one died of natural causes besides this disease. Every birth was good. Everything was living in, in the land of Israel where they were at, the Goshen. This was, God made it so drastically different. Pharaoh had to hear about it, sent people to confirm. And, and it says it there on purpose just to let you know they had no doubt in their mind that not only were their cattle and their ox and their donkeys and their horses not sick from this disease, they're not sick at all. They're not dying at all. Nothing's dying over there. And there's this huge gap that he's creating for them to see it. And in face of that overwhelming proof, he says, I'm going to harden my heart. By circumstances, pride, he's not relenting. Is it not heartbreaking to see this? Not heartbreaking to see how the world is? I just want you to, to see how many gods God took down on this one. The black apis bull was a sacred animal. And I don't even know how to pronounce all these. Ptah, which is worshipped in Memphis. They had one bull they picked and said, this is the incarnation of the god. And when that bull died, they would give it its own grave and pick a new bull to represent Ptah as the incarnation of this god. <laughs> now, that bull's dead, and the replacement bulls are dead. The majority of the bulls are dead. That god wiped out, right? Hathor, the Egyptian goddess of love, represented by the cow, and often shown with a cow's head, and what's dying? Another god down. Menephs, a sacred bull worshipped in Heliopolis, south of the Delta region, and he's connected with the creator god, another creator god, Re. And so what you're looking at is now multiple gods addressed, all of these cults undermined by livestock, specifically cattle dying, and no way for them to stop it. Yet not a single cow dying amongst the Hebrews whose God said Egypt should let them go. And now you're an Egyptian, and you find out that there's these two old dudes talking to the Pharaoh who just said your cows are going to all die and ours aren't. And you find out that the God you've been worshiping and bowing down to, that you believe is sacred, and you have a replacement picked, and this is important to you, and everything about this is, is your whole life centers on this worship, and you're in Memphis right now, not Memphis, Tennessee, but Memphis, Egypt. And you realize that their, their cattle are alive and yours are all dead. Now, whose God is all-powerful? Any doubts in your mind? I know Pharaoh's hard-hearted, but you've got to imagine that the people living everyday lives are like, come on, dude, you've got to stop this. This is, this, we're going to get annihilated. Has it not gotten closer to home now? Right? Because first it's frogs, it's blood, the water, okay, you're, you're, this is our source in the delta, but then go further down, maybe not as critical. Then you move beyond that, and you've got all these frogs, and they stink it all up, and then you get these little stinging gnats, and then you get these flies that are torturing you, and now, now he's affecting your livelihood. Now it's really getting home, but those animals, all of them ran animals as an agricultural society, and now you're having these animals, and they're dying in mass. What feels like next? Who dies after the animals die? You do. So suddenly, you're just lost all foundation to stand on, and you realize, whoever that God is over there, we've got to stop messing with them. And they don't care how many cities can be built with Israelites. They're going to really want them gone. And, and what's interesting, though, is Pharaoh, though, in the face of all that, says, nah, it's all right, I'm going to be hard about this. 
I read in a book, and I'm, I'm summarizing a little bit here. So this is not a direct quote, but it's a summarization of what I read. There was an atheist scientist that literally acknowledged the truth of a creationistic argument. Literally said, the evidence would make the most sense if there was a God who created it. And this next phrase was, but we know that's not possible. To concede that would undermine everything we've worked for. So you know what this guy did? Finished his book, How Evolution Was True. It was fascinating to me. I remember reading it and thinking, how would he, how does he have the audacity to write this? This wasn't hiding. He wasn't, he didn't accidentally say this while walking and mumbling after losing debate. This guy wrote in a book that got published. There's a paragraph in his book that basically said, yeah, if we actually gave their point of view an honest run, then all the evidence makes perfect sense. We can't do that though, because then we would not be God anymore and he would be. And I just want you to realize how our world will do the same thing. Here, Pharaoh is locked in on his perspective, unwilling to acknowledge the reality of the one and only true God because it meant a change to his own idolatry. And we are officially out of time. I will finish up the boils and the rest of the plagues. And then after that, we'll do the following week. We'll do the final plague and talk about the Passover. I hope you can see something. I'm going to read this application real quick. Um, There's no doubt who the Almighty is. And here's the thing. I don't want us to miss how Pharaoh represents our world and can represent us. So I put here, let's be sure we see God's authority, his power, and his right to all. And let's be sure to not be Pharaoh of our own lives.